Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God who sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is He who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But He merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number and calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Don't you know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might. He increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run, not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Holy Father, we thank you today that you are sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. You raise up leaders, you pull them down. You look at the inhabitants of the earth and we're but grasshoppers in your sight in comparison to your greatness. Every star, the hundreds of millions are named by you. The earth is like dust in your balances. And yet, with that said, you care for us that nothing escapes our notice, your notice, that you are sovereign and providential in the affairs of every event that takes place in our lives. We just sang, Father, where else can we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Peter said, you, Lord Jesus, have the words of eternal life. May we never be ashamed of those words. May we be quick to share them even this week. Now we come and worship through your word in spirit and in truth, and we ask that you'd renew our minds and hearts through the inspired, infallible word. Help us to see what you have for us. I know, Father, many are new to the faith, and we are dealing with difficult truths, but we pray by the Spirit of God that each person that will come, whether it's the newest of Christian or the oldest, would be able to take something away that they can apply and change their life by. So I ask you for your help. Come and fill me and anoint me and use me, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning, Daniel chapter 11. We're working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the prophet Daniel. And today we come to Daniel 11, verses 36 to 45. This particular passage of Scripture is studied by prophecy students everywhere. It's a description of the coming Antichrist. Now the Bible teaches that the next great event in God's calendar is the rapture, the catching up of the church. It could happen tonight. Maybe it will happen during this church service. Maybe while you're at work tomorrow. Maybe while you're driving your car. Maybe while you're riding in an airplane. Someday, all of the true Christians will be caught up. Rapturo in the Latin translation. People say the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not in the English Bible. It's in the Latin Bible. We'll be caught up. Harpazo to meet the Lord in the air. 
It's known as the rapture, and those who are left behind will be left behind for the worst time that human history has ever known. And Daniel 11 is describing that time. Now, let me bring you into the context, first the broad context and the immediate context. If you remember from this chart, the book of Daniel divides into two halves. In chapters 1 through 6, we have Daniel and his personal friends. The first six chapters are largely historical, with a few prophetical passages brought in. They're told through the third person. The second half of the book deals with Daniel and his people's future, dealing with the future of Israel. Almost the entire section is prophetical with a little bit of history brought in, and it's told from the first person. And so, if you remember the dreams and visions in chapters 7 through 12, and there are four, one in 7, one in 8, one in 9, and then one in 11, the longest vision in the entire book. Chapter 10, if you remember, serves as an introduction to the vision in 11. And chapter 12, which we will study in our next time together, is the conclusion of the vision. So four visions, the prologue in 10, the vision itself in 11, and then the conclusion or the postscript to really the entire book. Now, if you remember, narrowing our focus a little bit, chapter 11 divides into two uneven halves. Verses 1 through 35 deal with the 70 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. If you remember Daniel 9.24, one of the most amazing prophecies in all of the Bible, we were told of 70 weeks. We saw that in the Jewish Bible and the Hebrew Scriptures, there's not only a week of days like we have, but a week of years. And the context is always clear as to what is in view. And we showed you three reasons why this was not a week of days, but a week of years. He's not speaking of 77s in terms of days, but 77s in terms of years, 490 years. And he breaks down the prophecy. The first 69 weeks deal with 483 years. And so all of the events in chapter 11, verses 1 to 35, take place in the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. There's a decree that is written by a king. We can identify from the Scripture the exact date, not only from biblical history, but secular history. And if you take 490 weeks of days, it brings you to April 6, 32 AD, what we call Palm Sunday, when Jesus officially said to the Jewish people, this was your day, the very day that the prophets had written of. Some were alert to it, like Simon there in the temple. He knew the Messiah was coming. Anna knew the Messiah was coming. The wise men, no doubt, knew the Messiah was coming because mathematically God had said that he will come, he will present himself to Israel by 32 AD. After that time, he would be cut off, he'd be crucified. After that time, the Bible also says that Jerusalem, both the temple and the city would be destroyed, and it took place exactly like God said. But because of the unbelief of the Jewish people, because they refused to acknowledge as a nation that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, there's a time out in the 70 weeks. And so there's a gap of time between the 69th and the 70th week that is now extended for a few thousand years. But there's coming a day after the rapture of the church when the time out will be over and there'll be a time in and the 70th week of Daniel will begin. It will begin with the rapture of the church. Once the church is raptured, a short time there later, weeks, days, months, we're not exactly sure because the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's short, it's quick. 
the 70th week will begin with a covenant that this one world leader will make known as the Antichrist. So here in verses 36 to 38, we're going to look at the blasphemies of the Antichrist. And then in verses 39 to 45, this ruler who will be here during the 70th week will look at the battles of the Antichrist. So let's get started with the blasphemies of the Antichrist. Now, if you remember, there is a gap of time between verses 35 and 36. And that's not unusual. We've already seen that illustrated several times through the prophet Daniel and even in the New Testament and other passages. We looked at a passage in the prophet Zechariah. We looked at a passage in Luke 4. We looked at a passage in Isaiah 9 that most of us will read at this time of year. A child is going to be born unto us and the governments will rest upon his shoulders. The second half of that prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. A child has been born the Lord Jesus, the governments have not yet rested on his shoulders. And so very often there's a gap of time, a prophetic gap that God has. And so when you come between 35 and 36, that gap ends and we're going to pick it up in this future time. Now, all of the prophecies, 135 of them, were literally actually fulfilled in the first 35 verses of this chapter. And we saw, among other things, not only were they fulfilled historically, it's all past, verses 36 and following is all future, but it's a reminder to us how God fulfills prophecy. He fulfills it literally. Every single prophecy for the first coming of Jesus was literally fulfilled. God said he'd be born in Bethlehem. Where was he born? In New York? No, Bethlehem. Exactly. Every prophecy literally fulfilled, and so it will be for the second coming. And so those verses are a reminder to us of what God is yet to do, He will literally do. And because, as we saw within those verses, there's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist, now we come to the actual Antichrist that He's going to speak of. And so when you come to verse 36, it's obvious that there's a change here in tenor. There are six reasons why we know that. In the first 35 verses, He speaks of a series of kings. Remember the king of the north and the king of the south. But when you come to this section, he speaks of the king, a new and coming king at the end of time, who is not a good king, he's a wicked king, he's an evil king, he's the Antichrist. Second, there is a mention here in both verses 35 and then again in verse 40 about the end of time. That serves you notice that he's speaking about eschatological time, a future time at the end of time. And we'll see Daniel 12.4, which is the postscript to this vision. He will speak again about the end of time, the identical expression used in our passage this morning. And the end of time in Daniel 12.4 is linked to Daniel 12.1 that he calls the latter days. And in the latter days and in the end of time, he speaks of a time that is unprecedented in human history. In the 12th chapter, it's called by the prophet Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble. Most of us know it as the great tribulation, but he already gave us a warning of this in the prologue in chapter 10. Let me read 10, 14. Now I have come to give you this angel an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. So he gives them an immediate prophecy, but then he gives them a prophecy that will deal with the latter days, which Daniel links to the end of time when people will be resurrected to the dead from the dead in the 12th chapter. Third, 
The first 35 verses have a precise fulfillment in human history. Every single phrase has literally, actually, historically been fulfilled. Which, by the way, is why the liberals hate the first 35 verses. In fact, the only way they can get around it is they don't think of Daniel as the prophet, but Daniel as a historian. Because they start with the presupposition that there's no such thing as the miraculous and the supernatural. They argue that there was not a man, Daniel, in the 6th century A.D. who wrote this, but a man some as late as the 2nd century A.D. who wrote it as history. But we saw the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not to mention their... uh, They're combating what the Lord Jesus taught about Daniel. Jesus didn't call him Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet. So there's a perfect historical correspondence because God knows the future. He can tell it in advance. There is no such historical correspondence for the final verses in this chapter. Why? Because they haven't happened yet. Fourth, we know there's a gap of time between these verses because he's referring again to the latter days. And when we come to verse 36, he will include in that an expression known as the indignation. If you look at verse 36, he speaks of a time when the indignation is finished. It's a reference to the outpouring of God's wrath. And as we'll see, this phrase is synonymous with the great tribulation period, and it's referring to the latter days. Look at 12.1 for a moment. And there will be a time of distress, such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Does that sound familiar? A time of distress that is unprecedented in human history? Of course it does. If you know your Bible, Jesus, when he's on the Mount of Olives, is referencing this time, a future time that he connects with his second coming from heaven. Let me read it to you. He said, for then there will be great tribulation. Then when? Then when the event of the abomination of desolation takes place that he just quoted from the prophet Daniel in Daniel in Matthew 24, 15. Then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So there's coming a time spoken of by both the Lord Jesus and the prophet Daniel that will be worse than any other time in all of human history. Hasn't happened yet. And a fifth reason we know that this passage jumps ahead to the church age, to the 70th week, is because Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us that this time of great tribulation is followed by a time of evaluation. Many of those, Daniel 12, 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, describing their bodies, will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's identical to Matthew 24, a time of great tribulation, a time of great judgment, followed by an evaluation. And finally, the last three revelations, first in chapter 7, then in chapter 8, then in chapter 9, were each closed by a reference to a coming man of sin that we typically call the Antichrist. So it's fitting in this fourth and final revelation in the prophetic section that he would once again close with a reference to the coming Antichrist. We will learn and have been learning so much about the Antichrist here in the prophet Daniel, and then the book of Revelation will fill in the fine details for us. All right, so now we come to this section. 
He's going to describe this man's character, his career, and his ultimate condemnation. He begins with his character as he notes the royal pride of the Antichrist, the royal pride of the Antichrist. We read here in verse 36, then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Now, we are, he's described here as a man of self-will, and his um, self-will is seen in the fact that he does as he pleases. He is the willful king. Now, there are many titles given for this one that we most popularly know as the Antichrist, over 30 titles in the Bible. Some of the most prolific ones are he's called the Little Horn in Daniel 7, in Daniel 8, he's called the king of fierce countenance. That is, he has a face, a fierce-looking face, um, because the face, the countenance, speaks of what's in the heart. In chapter 9, he's already been referenced as the prince who is to come. Many of you know him in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he's given two titles, the man of lawlessness, and he's also called the son of destruction or the son of perdition. He's doomed to destruction. In 1 John 2, a title that's used only once in the Bible, but the most popular title, he is called the Antichrist. In Revelation 13, one of the most prolific titles of this man, he's called the Beast. But all of these designations refer to the exact same person. And here in verse 36, this king is described as the one who will do as he pleases, or the willful king. He does whatever he wants. So here is a man who wants his own way, who wants his own will. He is an absolute selfish dictator. He is self-willed, and we will see that he is inspired to do so by Satan himself. But before we rag too hard on the Antichrist, we might pause for a moment and remind ourselves that we too can be a self-willed people. When Adam sinned, the Bible teaches the whole world sinned in and with Adam because it affirms the solidarity of the race. So you can't say, well, it's Adam's fault. No, you sinned in and with Adam. Paul said, therefore, just as through one man, referring to Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. And so now the entire human race is linked to Adam and we have a proclivity to do what is wrong. Paul there in Greece and Athens up on top of the Areopagus. Uh, Mars Hill, as it's popularly called, he tells us that God has made of one blood all the nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. We may look different here this morning, but we're all related. We're all from one blood. We all have our original parents that we can trace our genealogy back to. You have Adam's sinful blood flowing through your veins this morning. And so we are described in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's why Jesus could say of lost people in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. The desires of Satan are only self-centered, and by nature we are this way, and the only thing that will change it will be a birth from above. Jesus said, you must be born twice, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And when you are born again, your self-centered tendencies begin to change. 
That's why at the end of time, all these people who claim they are Christians but did not have a life that changed given through a second birth, he will say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? I will declare to you, I never knew you. And so the first way we will see the royal pride of the Antichrist is through his self-will. This man will not come to do God's will, but his own will. Secondly, we learn in verse 36 that he will exalt himself. He will exalt himself. We read, then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He is the antithesis, the exact opposite of the Lord Jesus. Of Jesus it said that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. But the Antichrist, by contrast, will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He is the devil's man, and so he acts just like the devil, like Satan. And his fall is recorded in two passages, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. 14 times 2 is 28. Easy to remember, right? Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. The two passages describing the fall of the evil one. Five times over, he said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He wants to be like the most high And so the Antichrist is described in similar fashion. Listen to these words from 2 Thessalonians 2. You may want to turn there or just listen carefully. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it was from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now follow the flow of thought. The Thessalonians had received some kind of letter, some word of prophecy, some message to the effect that the day of the Lord had begun, and that they thought they had missed the rapture. Now, the term yom in Hebrew and the word day in the New Testament can refer to either a 24-hour day or a period of time. God created the world in six literal 24-hour days, no gaps of time between. How do I know? Because that's how it's described in Genesis, and that's how God comments on it in Exodus 20 when Moses writes the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth, resting on one. And so we follow the exact same pattern. But the day of the Lord can also refer to a period of time. We speak of the day of your youth. We're not talking that you're a youth for one day. And interesting, the day of the Lord, an expression found throughout the Old Testament, is used to describe a very dark time and a very bright time, a very awful time and a very wonderful time. Why? Because it mimics a biblical day. A biblical day starts with sundown, and it goes down through sundown the next day, and so the Jewish Sabbath to this day. I believe we're in the shadows, but when the church is raptured, it's going to get pitch black. But Jesus will come. And it will be bright as can be. He will rule and reign with a rod of iron for a thousand years. But at the end of that thousand years, as we're going to study, it's going to get dark again. So they thought, oh, we're we're in the day of the Lord. We, we, We missed the rapture. Paul said, no, impossible. Don't listen to these other letters. He will later say, look, unless this letter has this mark on it, it's not from me. He said, you know, for two reasons. Number one, the apostasy hasn't taken place yet. We've always had apostasy, but there is coming the apostasy, and the seeds are being sown for it in our day. A great falling away worldwide. 
nor has the man of lawlessness been revealed. And so those two events will happen after the rapture. This one who, verse 4, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. You may be thinking, how will the Antichrist be able to do that since the temple doesn't exist in our day? Well, let me review with you Daniel 9.27 for a moment. Daniel 9.27 says, and he, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, That's the nearest antecedent back in verse 26. And he will make a firm covenant with the many, speaking of the Jewish people, if you remember, for one week. It's a week of years for seven years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So this is a reference to the coming Antichrist. In plain English, the Antichrist is going to come and make a covenant with the many, with the people of Israel, for seven years. And during this seven-year period, in the middle of the seventh year, he is going to break the covenant. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, there on the top of the Temple Mount, 37 acres of property, the most disputed piece of property on the face of the earth. And now, beyond dispute, virtually no Orthodox Jews would... Kick against this. The actual temple did not sit where the Dome of the Rock is, but right next to it, adjacent to it. In either case, I don't know if they'll tear down that dome before the temple's built. The Bible doesn't tell us, but in either case, the temple is going to be rebuilt on top of that temple mount. How will it happen? Well, no doubt the man of peace who comes with all kinds of signs, wonders, and miracles will allow it to happen. All I know is that it needs to be done by the middle of the seven years. And as this next slide shows, in the middle of the 70th week, remember the first 69 weeks have been fulfilled. It brought us till Messiah the Prince, April 6, 32 AD. Now we are in the church age. The 70th week will begin when the church age ends, when the church is raptured. And in the middle of the 70th week, the A of D, the abomination of desolation, which Jesus quotes in Matthew 24, 15, he relates it to his second coming. The Antichrist will go into that rebuilt temple and claim to be God. That's what Paul just said. Now, you go to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem today, they have remanufactured all the priestly garments, the furniture. There's a group of Orthodox Jews who recognize the biblical truth without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. Now, they don't understand yet in their minds that Messiah has come and shed his innocent blood, but they want to reinstitute the animal sacrificial system. And so when the Antichrist says, oh, it comes, you want to build your temple? No problem, that's fine. And in the middle of the week, He will put a stop to the grain offering. He will commit what Jesus called the abomination of desolation. He will tear up that treaty. And that doesn't surprise us because the devil is a liar and this is the devil's superman. He is a liar. The devil, whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. Why? Because he speaks from his own nature. And so when the Jews are sacrificing, at one point, the Antichrist, maybe the very dedication of the temple, he'll say, hold it. If there's anyone you need to worship, it's me. I am the one. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. 
They're on the top of the Mount of Olives when they're asking him about his second coming. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of, not through the historian, but through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Satan has always wanted to be like God. That was his sin that made him the devil, the devil. I want to be like the Most High. And so Satan's coming Superman will try to fulfill Satan's dream. There's going to be an unholy trinity during the time of the 70th week. And in the middle of the 70th week, Satan's dream will come to pass. Now, after the church is raptured, again, Israel has three and a half years to rebuild the temple. They could build it, start tomorrow maybe. I doubt it would happen tomorrow. But uh, what I'm saying is it could happen before the rapture of the church. But we know it will be completed and built by the middle of the 70th week because God literally fulfills all of his prophecies. So Daniel 11.36 says, This man will exalt and magnify himself above every god. So Paul said he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So the Antichrist will ultimately oppose every form of worship except the worship of himself. All of the deities, all of the shrines, all of the idols, all of the altars, all of the images will take second place to him. But I also want you to see not only will he act in self-will, not only will he exalt himself, he will blaspheme the true God. He will blaspheme the one true God. Verse 36 says, then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. So this man is a blasphemer without equal. And in Revelation 13, God amplifies in the statement. You might want to put in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 13, verses 5 and 6. Let me read Revelation 13, 5. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, one of the most outstanding characteristics of the coming man of sin is his big mouth. He has outstanding skills, and he will utter great boasts, and in doing so, he will blaspheme God. I mean, you talk about an orator. You talk about a man who can capture audiences. It will be this coming man. He will indeed inflame people's passions. He will convince people. He will challenge their intellects by the things that he says. He will get people to believe that up is down and down is up, that black is white, that white is black. He'll get you to think that if you murder your own mother, you're doing God a service. And he will come with all kinds of deceptive means, signs, wonders, and miracles. But among other things, he's Mr. Big Mouth. And Jesus said, if possible, but it's not. He would deceive even the elect, even true believers. Revelation 13, 6 says, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell on the earth. Whenever he opens his mouth, the devil speaks, hell speaks. And as you read the scripture, you discover that blasphemy is done in three ways. Number one, it's when you say something evil about God, he'll do that. Number two, when you claim to be God, that's what they accuse Jesus of. Are you the son of God? I am. And Caiaphas tore his robes and he said he's blasphemed, but he wasn't. It was true. This man will claim to be God. He'll speak evil of God. And he will also, another form of blasphemy in the Bible is when you can claim to forgive sin, whereas only God can forgive sin. And we will see in Daniel and Revelation, this man will do all three. But here in verse 26... 
He will attribute evil to God himself because he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. Now, if you remember from Daniel 7 and verse 25, he even tries to change God's moral laws. He'll try to make evil good. I had a young couple before me yesterday right here in this room who I was blessed to be able to watch be united in Christ. I said to them, you know, Abraham Lincoln once said to a little boy, he said, if a dog has four legs and you call the tail a leg, how many legs does the dog have? The little boy said, well, he has five legs. He said, no, he still has four legs. You can call a tail whatever you want, but there's only four legs. And I reminded them, a man, Arnier, literally a man, will leave his father and mother and cleave to his gunikos, his wife, referring to a female, and the two will become one. You can call marriage whatever you want. You can call two men married. You can call two women married. You can call it whatever you want. The law can call it whatever you want, but it's not a marriage, not in God's eyes. But we will see that this man will come and he will change moral laws in the promotion of sin because that's his chief aim, according to Daniel 7.25. He will be blasphemous in his speech and his behavior. He will, verse 36, prosper until the indignation is finished for which is decreed will be done. Now, the Hebrew word indignation is used throughout the Scripture to refer to God's righteous anger. Let me give you an example, Isaiah 10. For in a very little while, God says, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Same word is used later in the same book. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. There's coming the indignation. The wrath of God like this world has never, ever, ever seen or could never even imagine an unprecedented time in human history. Daniel 8, 19 describes it. He said, behold, I am coming to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And so the Jewish people will embrace a covenant with this man. But this man will tear up that covenant. And when the covenant is torn up in the middle of the 70th week, the tribulation period goes from tribulation to great tribulation, Jesus said. An unprecedented time, a horrible time to be alive, but God is going to use that time. You see, one of the functions of the tribulation period is not only to bring people who have never heard the name of Jesus in power and clarity, people who have never heard the gospel before to hear it for the first time, though most people will reject it, but one of the chief purposes of the tribulation is to bring the nation of Israel to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That's what Hosea the prophet wrote. God said, I will go away and return to my place. The Messiah came, but he went back to heaven to prepare a place for us. I will go away and return to my place until, until they, the Jewish people, acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. During the time of Jacob's trouble, the Jewish people will wake up and they will see Yeshua is the Messiah. That's one of the chief functions. Now, third, he will act in self-will. He will exalt himself. He will blaspheme the true God forth. But in addition to his royal pride, I want you to see his religious policy. Now we come to the religious policy of the Antichrist. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. 
Now we're told in verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Now, some have assumed that the Antichrist must be a Jew, assuming that the gods of his fathers must be a reference to the God of Israel. Well, number one, it's plural and correctly interpreted and translated here. Now, there are many problems with that interpretation to say that this Antichrist is a Jew. Number one, the revelation makes it very clear that he is the beast out of the sea, symbolic of the Gentile nations of the world. Now, the false prophet, we will learn in the revelation, comes out of the land, meaning the land of Israel. We saw already in the prophet Daniel several times that this coming man of sin will come out of a revived Roman empire. Some people think, well, the Antichrist will present himself as Messiah. We don't know that. He may be a Messiah to some people, but there's nothing anywhere in Scripture that says he will come to the Jewish people and say, I am your Messiah. But he will offer them a covenant which they will buy into, no doubt, in order to be able to rebuild their temple. Second, if this expression, the God of his fathers, was in reference to a Jew, he wouldn't have used the word he would have used. He would have used, no doubt, as Daniel does throughout this book, the Yahweh of his fathers. Now, the word Elohim can certainly refer to the one true God as it does in the first opening verse of the Bible, but it is also used repeatedly of false gods. It could be a false Roman Catholic God or a false Protestant God or any other God, heathen God you could think of. Third, had he chosen to use the word Elohim as reference to the God of Israel, he no doubt would have used the phrase repeated throughout the Old Testament, the God of our fathers, not the God of his fathers. In either case, here is a man who is going to be different in his belief of how he views God, and we'll see how in just a moment. So there's, he'll ignore his religious heritage because it's going to be entirely different from anything we've ever seen. Number two, he will have no regard for the Messiah. He will have no regard for the Messiah of Israel. Again, in verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. Please note what it does not say. It does not say that he will have no desire for women. This verse is now popularly being taught in the last 25 years to say the Antichrist is a homosexual. Makes really for colorful preaching, but it's not true. Not only does it not fit the context and the flow of the passage, neither does it fit the use of the word. He speaks here of the desire not for women, but of women. What does that Hebraism mean? Well, if you go back to the Essenes who gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can see them use this phrase. If you ask an Orthodox Jew today, and if you read many rabbinical commentaries today, what is the desire of women? They will tell you in a moment. Jewish Orthodox girls are taught from the time they are little that some precious little Israeli is going to give birth to the Messiah. That's the desire of every Hebrew girl, that she could possibly be the one who would carry the Messiah in her womb. But this man will come along. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. That is to say, he'll have no regard for these who are looking forward to the Messiah, nor will he show regard for any other god. 
So understanding this phrase as the ancient Jewish commentators do, it flows as a unit. Oh, it's possible the Antichrist could be a homosexual, but that's not what this text is saying. So as a part of his religious policy, this man of sin will demand the soul will demand to be the sole object of worship. There it is in your outline. He'll demand to be the sole object of worship. Nor will he show any regard for any God, for he will magnify himself above them all. Simply means that he will oppose all other religions. Now, initially, he comes as an ecumeniac. He wants to lead the ecumenical movement. But in the end, he becomes the ecumenical movement. There will be a one-world religion. One religion for one world will be his motto, and he will be the object of worship. And that's why when you come to the Revelation, if you're a Jew who comes to embrace Jesus as Messiah or a Gentile who comes to embrace Jesus as Messiah, therefore you will refuse to take the mark of the beast and you'll have your head cut off. He'll magnify himself above them all. He will be Mr. Ego upon Ego. He'll want his name everywhere, right down to your body, on your hand, or on your forehead, the Revelation says, and he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, certainly the technology is in place where one man, through a number, could control the world. But remember, the imminent return of Christ has been taught since Pentecost. This could have happened in the first century if God dictated it without technology. That God may not use technology. Certainly, he could implant a chip, as they do in animals, and certain high-level people in the United States government. Maybe it's a tattoo. Tattoos are so popular in our day. Many of you have tattoos. Many of you wish you didn't have a tattoo, but what can you do? I baptize people every week. They got tattoos everywhere, on their toes, on their legs, everywhere. It's tattoo world, and wherever you go. In fact, the Orthodox are so distraught in Israel because you see more and more Israelis with tattoos and they immediately know he's a total unbeliever. Now, I'm not ragging on anyone with tattoos. Everyone with a tattoo is welcomed here. Many have tattoos on their bodies, some that we can't see. That's okay. <laughs> Use it as a reminder of what God has saved you from. Now, this is a sermon in itself what God says about tattoos, but I'm not going there today. I don't have time for that. But Daniel wants you to know that this man is going to control the world. And the scripture is very clear. You will not be able to buy or sell anything apart from taking his number. Revelation 20 and verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. They had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So in addition to the royal pride of this man, I also, in the religious policy of this man, I want you to notice the real purpose of the Antichrist. Verse 38, but instead, here's his real purpose, but instead he will honor a God of fortresses 
a God whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Instead, or in the place of God that occupies most people's thinking, the Antichrist will honor a God of fortresses, a God of war. Who is this God of fortresses? Who is this God of war? The one that Jesus said came only to kill and to destroy and to steal. It was Satan who legitimately offered to Jesus the kingdoms of this world. And Satan had a right to make that offer. And the Antichrist will accept that offer and become the world dictator. And in order to take the world for himself as a man, he will need military power. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. And he will honor him, meaning this God of fortresses, with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Everything that was valuable, even to this day in many countries of the world, people will give some of their best to some false god they worship. They will give their gold, their silver, and their costly stones and treasures to their gods. But this man will give all of his monetary might to a god of fortresses to build a military machine. Verse 39, he will take action against the strongest of fortresses. With the help of a foreign god, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause him to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. So he'll attack the strongest of fortresses. There will be no world power, not even the strongest superpower you can think of, that will be able to rule over this man with the help of a foreign god, the devil himself. He will pull this off. Revelation 12 and verse 12 says, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens. And you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Listen, the first half will be a relative period of peace, but when the abomination of desolation takes place, Mr. Peace will become Mr. War. And it's in the middle of the 70th week that the devil comes down with his fallen angels. And if you're in heaven, it will be a great place. But if you are on the earth, it will be the worst place. Verse 39 says, He will give great honor to those who acknowledge Him and will cause Him to rule over the many and will parcel out land for price. He is going to take the kingdoms of this world and then He will buy with His treasures people's allegiances. He will give them to rule over the many. He will parcel out land for a price that is for a reward. He'll divide the spoil in order to keep their loyalty. He will rule the world. Now, that's the blasphemies of the Antichrist. Very quickly as we close, now the battles of the Antichrist in verses 40 to 45. This section opens up in verse 40 by telling you something first about the rivals of the Antichrist. Who are those who will be against him? They won't all be for him. Verse 40, at the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. Now, we've already studied the first half of the chapter, really the first 35 verses of the chapter. Remember the king of the south? Remember the king of the north? What's south of Israel? What country? Egypt, still called Egypt today, amazingly. What's north, directly north of Israel? Who is the king of the north? Remember, all directions in the scripture, north, south, east, or west, are given from Israel, which God views as the center of the world. Syria, to this day it's called Syria. 
And we saw in the first 35 verses how secular history records exactly what Daniel wrote and prophesied as having come true. And so on the end of time, these foes are going to come against Israel. And indeed, Egypt and Syria hate Israel. You read their constitutions, they want to drive Israel into the sea, they say. Those old rivals will come. Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadowed them, but they will come on the stage during the great tribulation period. Verse 40 says at the end time, he's referring to that final time in human history after the rapture of the church. Notice, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him. That is the king of Egypt and the king of Syria. They'll go against the Antichrist. How? With chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. Now, some argue that the Antichrist has disarmed the world powers of conventional weapons, maybe through some electronic, you know, spark that people warn us about that would break down all of the electronics in the world. I don't know it's possible, but I think what is more likely in light of what we will study in the Revelation is that since Daniel has no direct counterpart in his day to describe whether it's aircraft or or, 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 you know, F-35s or whatever it might be. He's using terminology to help the people understand what will take place in that day, that the Antichrist will have a variety of resources. He will come with chariots and horsemen and many ships. In either case, it's very clear that he will overthrow Egypt and Syria. Now, those are his rivals. In addition, I want you to think about the revenge, the revenge of the Antichrist. You see, neither the king of the north nor the king of the south will be successful. So we're told he will enter countries, overflow them. That is, he'll, he'll win them, he'll conquer them and pass through. And so he's pictured throughout the Revelation as being a victorious reigning warlord until Jesus comes back. Verse 41, he will enter the beautiful land. I've already documented that term for you in our study of Daniel, a reference to Israel. He will enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Amnon. Now, that's interesting. He goes back to Israel, here termed the beautiful land. And while Egypt and Syria fall, along with many other countries, there are three countries that are spared, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, here on the map. Now, if you remember your biblical history, three of Israel's greatest enemies are the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. And the piece of land that they hold geographically today is called Jordan. Now, why these three groups of people, why these three groups of people that today live in the land of Jordan and they describe themselves with these same ancestral terms, why are those three spared? We're not told. Maybe because they hated the Jews for so many centuries and fought against them that it will be the devil's thank you. But the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Even the Antichrist, remember, Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He can only do what God allows. And Jesus tells us in the Olivet Discourse, as they are reading Matthew 24, they're going to realize they missed it. All of those tour guides who have heard preachers like me talk about Yeshua and what he is going to do. All of these people, all of these Orthodox Jews who've been witnessed to by evangelical Christians in the land of Israel, they're going to realize they were right 
and they're going to be pouring over the Scriptures. And Jesus said in the midpoint of the tribulation, those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. And he's referring to Jordan. And so you have a picture here of one of those places. Some of you have been to Petra. It's in the wilderness. Why? Because they're going to find protection there for their life to be spared. By the way, this whole sequence marks what we call the War of Armageddon. Now, many Christians popularly speak of the Battle of Armageddon, but it's really not a battle, it's a war, it's not a single fight, it's a three and a half year uh, battle that reaches a final meet-off in a city we call Jerusalem. Now, the gathering place will be Armageddon, but the final place will be Jerusalem. So here's Mr. Peace. He becomes Mr. War. Notice verse 42 and 43. The campaign continues. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. He'll defeat the Egyptian armies in these other countries. He'll plunder their great treasures. He is an interesting man whose values are warped like many people today. Here he is. He's amassing wealth for himself. He'll be the richest man on the planet. But his time is about ready to come to an end. And there are many people like that today. They are stockpiling things. Their whole hope is in this world only. But spiritually, they are bankrupt. And they are headed for an eternal disaster, as is this man, which brings us to the rage of the Antichrist. He has his rivals, which leads to his revenge. And so now feeling his oats, feeling incredibly strong, we now see his rage. Let's think about the rage of the Antichrist. Verse 44. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So to add to his difficulties, the Antichrist hears of another invasion from the east and from the north. And as he prepares to defend himself, the Antichrist, who has his headquarters, the Revelation teaches, as does the prophet Ezekiel in Israel, he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. He will be between the seas, a reference to the two great seas in Israel, the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. He will station himself between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, which we have already identified, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, as Mount Moriah, where the temple will sit. And if you fix geographically between the holy mountain and those two seas, you come to a place called Hamageddon, where the gathering nations of the world will meet. And we are told in the book of Revelation, like here, of a great army from the east, Revelation 9, 16, put it out in the margin, and the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. There's only one army on the face of the earth. It is east of Israel. It is Red China with an army that they boast of 200 million people. John can't count the number. It's too big. He hears the number and he writes it down. And then there's an army from the north. 
in Ezekiel 38 and 39 defines the army specifically as Russia having gathered a number of Arab nations around them. And so you have Red China, you have Russia with her allies attacking the Antichrist with his allies from the revived Roman Empire, which could potentially include the U.S. since we have European roots. In either case, they will gather together first in a particular plane, Revelation 16, verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings of the east. The water of the great Euphrates River will be dried up by a supernatural act of God such that the red Chinese with their army of 200 million people will be able to march right up the riverbed into Israel. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Here's Satan's unholy trinity during the great tribulation period. The dragon is defined in the revelation of Satan. No mystery. The beast is called the Antichrist. And the false prophet is that one who gives people motivation to turn to the Antichrist. So Satan will try to mimic God's holy trinity. Satan will take the role of God the Father. The Antichrist will take the role of God the Son. And the false prophet who points men to the Antichrist will take the role of God the Spirit. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the war of the great day of God Almighty. He's talking about demons who will inspire the minds of kings and presidents and prime ministers and convince them to march against Israel. Verse 15, it says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments Let's see, walk about naked and men see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Hamageddon. So the Antichrist, in conjunction with his fallen demons, thinks he's going to achieve a great victory. But he will not. That brings us finally now to the ruin of the Antichrist. The ruin of the Antichrist. Daniel 11, verse 45 and he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Why? Because 666 is going to be crushed by 777. You see, Antichrist's time will have run out. It will be all over. It will be too late for him. It will be done and Jesus will come, and he will rule and reign. And I saw the beast, Revelation 19 says, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized with a false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These were, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Satan, the false prophet, the Antichrist will spend eternity, the Bible says, in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, but they won't be the only occupants there. Revelation 20, 15 says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he too, the scripture says, was thrown into the lake of fire. Now listen to your pastor this morning. 
All 135 prophecies of the first 35 verses were literally fulfilled. Precisely just as God said. And I want to tell you, he's going to fulfill the rest of the prophecies in this chapter during the 70th week. And you may be here today and say, I don't get this stuff. This is irrelevant to me. Some of you may think I am a nut and you are sneering and mocking and laughing under your breath. The Bible says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their lust, their evil desires and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. There will be people who will mock. They have forgotten. As he will illustrate, just as God intervened once before upon the whole world with Noah's flood, he will intervene again with Jesus' judgment. King Jesus will come back. They'll gather there in the field of Armageddon. And they will make their way to Jerusalem and the Messiah will come to the Mount of Olives with thousands and thousands and millions of angels and his saints and he will put an end to it all. Now, how do we apply this to our lives today? Let me make a suggestion from Luke 17. Jesus is speaking about his return. And it happened, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Then he moves to Lot. And by the way, people say to me on occasion, well, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. Yes, he did. Just to mention Lot is to give credence to Genesis 19. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down and take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Now think for just a moment. The coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Think about the great flood. Just before God poured out his wrath upon the whole earth, he placed Noah and his family safely in the ark, and then they walked into a brand new world. And just before God poured out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah, he put Lot and his two daughters safely in Zoar. And just before the Antichrist officially comes on the scene and God pours out his wrath across the earth, he will rapture and catch up his people and remove us to heaven. Now, please listen to me. There are many implications. The days of Noah were the days of moral permissiveness, sexual immorality. That is our day. The days of Lot were days of moral perversion. That is our day. You think it is by accident. Why do you think people are reveling in the streets? Because they wanted a presidential candidate who would, in essence, endorse their immorality, be it abortion or homosexuality or anything else you can think of. That's not to say the one we got is any better. But it will be like the days of Noah 
and the days of Lot. Listen, there will be three classes of people living on the earth when the Lord Jesus comes. First, there will be the Noah type. And the Noah type is an illustration of the spirit-filled believer. Noah loved the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. He certainly was not a perfect man. But the pattern of his life was a life of obedience, and he had a godly influence on his family, and he was able to gather the whole family safely into that ark. Would that be true of you if Jesus came back today? And he enters into a world of reward just like those who are godly will, and they will hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Noah typifies the believer who is faithfully serving in the kingdom of God. But then there are the lot type of people. How did Lot go to the mountains? The angels had to argue with him. The angel dragged him by the hands. And most of his loved ones, including his own sons and sons of laws, perished in the doom that day, with the exception of two of his daughters. And while he got his daughters out of Sodom, he never got Sodom out of his daughters. Years before, Lot had made a worldly decision First, he camps on the outskirts of Sodom, and he gets kind of used to sin. And then he moves into the city of Sodom, and by the end of his life, he's a ruler in Sodom. He lived for the here and now, and in the end, his whole life went up in smoke. Lot typifies the believer at the judgment seat of Christ, the compromised believer whose reward will be lost, you say, do you think a carnal Christian will go to hell? Not if he's really a true believer. Of course not. But I can tell you this, Mr. Carnal Lot. Some of your loved ones and some of your friends will die and go to hell because of your compromised testimony. But there's a third type, the Noah type, the Lot type. And then there's the Lot wife's type. Jesus said in verse 32 here, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife had her heart in the world. She longed for what Sodom had to offer. The angels had to drag her out, but in the end she had a free will and she chose to turn back to do what God precisely said not to do and she turned into a pillar of salt and this morning she is in hell. Now the Holy Spirit has been wooing and convicting some of you. And you may not turn into a pillar of salt, but I can tell you this, your heart can. And you can reach a point of no return where you've put God off for so long. You will give a final eternal no to the living God. And you will be here for the great tribulation if it happens in our life. And the great tribulation will turn over into the lake that fires with brimstone. What kind are you? Are you like Noah? Are you like Lot? Or are you like Lot's wife? The Noahs of this world will experience great reward. The Lots of this world will experience great regret. The Lot's wives of this world will experience great wrath. You must choose. You cannot be neutral. Now, our Holy Father, thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. You gave us this word, not so that we might be intrigued, but that we might be changed. 
And I pray today, our Father, for someone who is here, who is a Noah type, help them to live well to the end, help them not to quit, to persevere to the very end as a spirit-filled Christian, but help the lot types who are compromised, whose hearts are being won over by the world, whose hearts are divided, whose testimony is hypocritical, whose word of witness is weak. Help somebody like that today, Father, to put first things first. And I pray for those who are like Lot's wife, who are totally in the world, who have never repented and believed on the Lord Jesus. Help them to realize that today could be the last day. For you said in some instances you give the devil permission to snatch the seed that they may not believe and be saved. You said today is the day of salvation. Help someone in simple faith to cry out to the Lord Jesus and to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. Father, thank you for this book, for its challenge, but for its truth. And we apply it to our lives today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.